0: to the book of Titus. This is going to sound a bit strange when I make this next statement, and that is the fact that I am not going to actually preach tonight uh, nor teach a lesson as such, but rather I just simply want to chat about some things for a little bit. I say that because I'm getting ready, Lord willing, next Sunday night to start a series of messages pertaining to the Lord's Supper, and we'll cover it in probably four, or five, or six messages, something like that anyway, a, a short series, and uh, we'll cover all of the details pertaining to that. But before we get to that, uh, there's some things that we need to think about. And so uh, if if, you know, things seem a bit confusing tonight, that's because we're not taking a verse of Scripture or a section of Scriptures and doing an expository-type message, but just some thoughts trying to set the table for the messages that are coming up. So think of it as a prolonged introduction to the series. Here in Titus chapter number 1, Paul is writing to Titus who is uh, on the Isle of Crete, and he says in verse number 5, "...for this cause..." "...left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, the things that are lacking, the things that are needful." And so evidently there were some problems, and he mentions that, by the way, as he goes on, and some needs that, uh, that needed to be addressed. And he, Paul says, "...I've left you there in Crete for that reason." And then in Jude, only one chapter, but the third verse, a very important verse, by the way, says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, the reason that I'm doing it this way is because of all of the confusion about churches. You know, sometimes we'll talk about being a independent, unaffiliated Baptist church, and people look at you like a calf looking at a new gate, like, what in the world is he talking about? And there's a lot of confusion today about what makes one church, and I use that word, you know, in the broader sense, what makes one congregation or church, religious organization, different from the other. And dividing them up into different denominations doesn't really seem to help all of that much. You know, at first glance, it appears that that would be the way to do it, because we know that, you know, Christians have all of these differences of opinion uh, uh, about what the Bible teaches, and so you've got some. They'll take one view and some another view. So on one hand, you know, you've got the, the Methodist and the Presbyterian and the Baptist and all of these different groups, and so... Uh, people think, you know, well, that's uh, that's the way to do it, just to divide it up. But the problem is, one of the problems is that then you get into the subgroups of those. You have not only, you know, Baptists saying, I'm a Baptist. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean you're a Southern Baptist? Does that mean you're a Northern Baptist? Does that mean you're a Baptist Bible Fellowship? Does that mean you're the ABA? You know, they're... they're There is a whole list of different groups under the heading of Baptists. Now, in the first place, and I don't want you to be distracted by this, but I want to emphasize the fact that the Baptists are not a denomination because we have no ecclesiastical head, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But you have all of these different Baptist groups, each one identified by a different term in order to let people know, well, you know, you have the fundamental Baptists over here, they're really strict, whereas over here you've got another group and they're not so strict. Here you've got one group, they put a lot of emphasis on missions and so forth, and maybe another group not so much. And and so you've got all of these different brands of Baptist, and it's not any wonder that people are confused. And so, you know, someone comes along and says, what kind of Baptists are you? And we say, we're just an independent Baptist church. You know, we're not affiliated with anyone or anything, and that confuses a lot of people. So, So I think maybe it'll help if we just spend a little bit of time talking about What is an independent Baptist church? And we need to think about the distinctives of being an independent Baptist church. What makes that different from any other group? And so I want to mention four things tonight that will help you in regards to this, that will help you help explain why we are an independent Baptist church. And number one, because we are self-governing. And that means we're free from from any outside control or membership in any kind of organization. Uh, Over the years, I've heard preachers time and time again gripe and complain about the fact they'll say something to the effect Well, I sure hate it that our national convention this year, that they approved this or that, you know, and they take a stance that's uh, contrary to what that person believes and often contrary to what the Scripture teaches. And my response is always the same. Why do you stay in something like that? Why do you identify with something like that? Somebody says, well, you know, we make our own rules and things like that, They're they're not actually exercising control over us. Because, by the way, in some instances there are certain religious organizations where, you know, a church can't do anything without getting the orders from headquarters. The Methodists, you know, and some of the others are really good at that. A local congregation can't just decide what it wants to do. so whenever I talk about being an independent, unaffiliated church, I'm talking about a church that is made up of a body of born-again, baptized believers that are united together in the common faith in the gospel for the purpose of glorifying God by obedience to His Word. That's what a church is. That's what we are. We're not a part of this group. We're not a part of that group. We're not a part of any other group. We don't have a a, a group out here where they, where they elect a president or somebody exerting control over us. We don't send our money into a board somewhere or a convention or a fellowship or an association. We are totally self-governing. You know, the, the people think, oh yeah, that's the way a church ought to be. Nobody ought to be able to tell a local congregation what they can do and what they can't do. Uh, we agreed. We shouldn't have to get authority from somebody else. We say, okay, we want we want to add on to the, uh, on to the auditorium so we have more room. Uh, could we get your approval to do that? That's none of their business what we do. You know, that's our business. And yet you've got certain so-called churches that, uh, that operate on an entirely different basis. In fact, some of them are family-run, family-operated. Really? Uh, I, you, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean and ugly whenever I say this, but, and, and by the way, this isn't the only church, the one I'm about to mention, that operates that way. Whenever you think about uh, Lakewood, for example, and the stein family, that church is not operated by the congregation. It's operated by a family. That's public knowledge. You, uh, you I, I've read that in the newspaper. You, you don't, you know, they decide to do something. It's not on the vote of the church. Somebody make a motion, second the motion, operate according to Roberts' rules of order or whatever, and have business meetings to decide what to do. And in a lot of churches, that maybe, maybe not. Not operated by an entire family; it's operated by a dictator called a pastor who tells the people what they're going to do. Believe me, there are churches that operate that way. The church, you know, they just depend on the pastor. We call the pastor to be our leader. We trust him, and so he makes he makes all of those decisions. So there's no vote on it. He gets up, and says, "We're going to do this and we're going to do that." We don't do that here. That's why we say every member of this church gets one vote just like every other member. We don't have any big-shot members and little members. If you're a member of the church, whether you're 8 or 80, you've got one vote just like anybody else does. The pastor is to provide leadership in the church, but he's not to be a dictator in the church. So we're we're talking about a church that is sound in doctrine. By that, I mean they uphold the teachings of God's Word. We accept the Bible as the divinely inspired, infallible Word of God. We believe every bit of it. And we operate on the basis of whether or not something is sound doctrine. We believe that is absolutely important. Now, naturally... None of us are smart enough to be 100% right about everything all of the time. None of us are that smart. But there are certain basic fundamental doctrines of the Bible that in order to qualify as a church, you must be right about. We think about the matter of salvation, for example. And, and And you you know so many people think, well, you know the all of the different denominations they're basically all of the same. we all go into the same heaven, we all believe the same thing, we all worship the same God and I'm telling you that's just simply not true we're not going to the same place. The Bible says you must be born again. Do you realize that other than other than a few of the of the uh non denominational a lot of them are identified as Bible churches. They take the name Baptist off of it. But most congregations today believe that you have to do something in order to become a Christian. We believe what the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace through faith. That's what Ephesians 2, chapter number 8, tells us. For by for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the what? The gift of God. We believe that. Listen, if somebody's wrong about that and they try to teach that you've got to keep the sacraments, you've got to be baptized or you've got to join their particular denomination or you've got to do this or you've got to do that in order to be a Christian, they're just wrong and they're wrong to the extent they don't qualify to be a church and so there you know there's the doctrine of salvation the doctrine of eternal security uh, and and all of these others that we could mention tonight and you know we're not trying to cover all of the major doctrines of the bible but when somebody says you know uh, you know, we, we believe Jesus is the Savior, but we don't really believe that He was born of a virgin. I mean, that is so unscientific. We're, we're just beyond that. We, we don't believe He was born of a virgin. We don't believe He was really resurrected from the grave. You know, that's just, that, that's too far out there. And by the way, you'd be surprised how many people call themselves Christians that, that, that do not believe in the virgin birth and the And the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, a true church is going to be one that adheres to the doctrines of the Word of God. Not only that, but they're going to have a a scripturally centered program by which they operate. You see, what we do and how we do it matters. And we need to operate according to the pattern that's given in the Word of God. That's our playbook. That's our guidebook. We we think about missions, for example, and uh, the missionaries were sent out of the churches in back. You know, in those days, they didn't send them to a board somewhere. I, I like. What one preacher said, he said, you know, one place I read about boards in the Bible is the ones that Paul floated to shore on and they were all wet. And it pretty well describes, you know, the other boards. I mean, for, for us to depend on a mission board to authorize a missionary. And by the way, in most instances, those those mission boards sets the salary that the that the preacher and his family can receive. And they dictate where he can go, how long he can stay. So they're lording it over the missionary, whereas according to the Bible and according to the way that we operate, if God calls a man and we send a man out as a missionary out of the church or, you know, we sponsor him or if we support a man out of the church, everything goes through the church. And it's the church that has the oversight over that man. And 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 you know, it's not like somebody says, Well I want to give a hundred dollars to missions and so you send it to your local mission board or whatever, you know, and uh, and they take out so much for administrative cost. After all, we've got to pay the president, we've got to pay the secretaries, we gotta pay the postage, we've got to do that. And the way we operate it is if you give a hundred dollars to a certain missionary, you know how much he gets? He gets a hundred dollars. We don't take out for postage. You don't take out for anything else. He gets every single penny. And we don't try to tell him how much salary that he can have. We figure the Lord's going to control that. You know, if the Lord wants him to have more... Praise God for that. I mean, that's up to the Lord. Who are we to, to try to set limitations on how much support that man and his family can receive? So that's a whole other matter in regards to the program, the manner in which we operate. And that doesn't just pertain to missions. That pertains to everything we do as a church. We want to make sure that we're doing it according to the pattern of the Bible. But there's another area, a fourth area that I want to mention, and that is that as an independent Baptist church, we are a church with certain, with certain distinctive emphasis on things. I'm going to mention just a few because, as I said, all of this is heading, heading up to, to speak in regards to the Lord's Supper, and we'll get there. But, taking the long route in order to do it some distinctive areas in regards to the church first of all it requires a regenerated church membership in order to be a member of this church a person has to have received jesus christ as their lord and savior We don't just open the door for anyone and tell anybody, you know, you're going to be a member of this church. It doesn't make any difference what you believe or where you came from. You can join the church. Now, listen, anybody can attend. They're welcome to come into the service and to sit and listen to the Word of God. We encourage that. But they do not become a part of the church until they have been born again. Not only born again, but also scripturally baptized. So we're talking about a church those members have been born again and scripturally baptized. Then there's the matter of scriptural giving. We believe that that is a, a one of our distinctives—the manner in which we operate. And we do that why, how by the free will offerings and the tithes of God's people. Now, this is more important than what you might imagine. There are churches that operate like a business. And they own property that you wouldn't believe. And they have income from rental properties. And they have different investments that they have made. And that list could go on and on and on of the different ways in which some churches finance their operation. We believe it ought to be just like it was in the New Testament that everything comes in by way of the of the tithe and the free will offering of God's people. That's why we don't sell anything. If our young people have a bake sale, we you know, people call it a bake sale. We always emphasize we're not selling anything. We don't. It's a matter of somebody making a contribution and giving whatever they want to give. If we have a bake sale and there cake over there, we need to change the name of that. It's fundraiser or whatever, but it's not a sale at all. And, uh, somebody says, well, you know, all I've got is a dollar and nobody else, nobody else wants it. They get it. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's the way it ought to be. Because we're not selling uh, things. We're not in that business. But I want to jump on now to the other one that'll kind of get us where I want to go. And that has to do with our statement of faith. And every church needs to have a clear statement of faith expressing what it believes, and uh, and you know every Baptist church that I know of, as far back as I can remember, almost fifty years now, and and over and over again, every church I know of has some kind of a statement of faith. You, you know, it comes in you know a little booklet form, and you can get it, and you can read it, and. It'll have a church covenant and the statement of faith telling what the church believes in regards to all of the fundamental issues, starting, you know, with the Godhead, what we believe about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and, and also what we believe about creation, what we believe about the church, what we believe about salvation, and the list goes on and on. And it's just a way of us declaring what we believe that the Bible teaches now in that statement of faith there'll be two ordinances one baptism and the other one is the Lord's supper you know there's not so much confusion today in regards to baptism especially you know among the baptists we've got it figured out the word the word baptize is 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 you know the Greek word baptizo was anglicized by just changing the ending of it and brought over, but it means the same immersion. That's the only way you can have a scriptural baptism is by immersing someone. It's not even grammatically correct to say that somebody was baptized when they were just sprinkled. that, That makes no sense whatsoever. So there is baptism, number one, But the real bone of contention, it seems, has to do with the Lord's Supper and all of the confusion and the different ideas about the Lord's Supper. And sadly, the way that a lot of churches and preachers operate is to say something like, well, we believe, and just leave it at that. You know, it really, listen, what we believe and what we think, what we propose... All of that is well and good only to the extent that we can back it up by what the Bible says. Because this, this is our guidebook right here. And so we don't have any right to just get up and say, well, you know, this is what we believe and we're satisfied with that. And if you don't like it, well, you can go somewhere else. Somebody says, "Well, you know, uh, have you read that book of so and so?" I tell you, it's one of the best sellers at the Christian bookstores. And he says, "There was one of them real popular that I think nearly all of you would know." That here a couple of years ago, he got off on this on a weird notion about baptism. I'm not going to go into the details of it whatsoever, but it shocked the Christian world that this fellow had such views about baptism now the danger of that is that this fellow was so popular and such a gifted writer in a lot of ways that a lot of people jumped on board said well he believes that you know and he's smarter than i am he's got to be right well just because he's smarter than you are doesn't mean he's right you can both be wrong and both be dumb or whatever i mean that listen that that didn't cut any ice it's not a matter of what so-and-so said. And that's why I always say, don't you ever believe anything I say just because I said it. Somebody said, well, we really trust Brother Stone. I mean, he's not, he's going to tell the truth. Yeah, but Brother Stone can be wrong. But the Bible's not wrong. And that's why we've got to, we've got to decide in our hearts to let the Word of God be the deciding factor in absolutely everything that we believe. We need to be like those in Berea. Acts seventeen eleven. it says, They received the Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily. Well, a lot of Baptists fall down there. They searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. Now, in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper. We're going to go right back to the upper room, and we're going to read the verses, and we're going to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about the elements used in the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about the purpose of the Lord's Supper, the the proper observance of the Lord's Supper, and, and some other things. Before we do that, however... I just want to begin by making a few statements tonight, and then I'll be through. Because it's been so long since we last observed the Lord's Supper, that I'm sure that there are some folks wondering why. And there might be some folks feel like, well, you know, Pastor, you owe us an apology. Well, I'm not going to apologize, but I am going to give you an explanation at least as well as I can, because I'm not sure that I can explain to anyone's satisfaction why that I feel like the Lord has led us to do it this way. Uh, Sometimes I feel like I'm as confused about it as you are. That's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way, but... But we need to understand that a church's ability to scripturally observe the Lord's Supper depends on the state or the condition of the church. I want to repeat that. A church's ability to scripturally observe the Lord's Supper depends on the state or the condition that a church is in. You, You see, anyone can serve the elements Any church can go through the motions. You can just get a group of people out here together somewhere and say, hey, let's, let's just, let's have communion. Let's just observe the Lord's Supper. And you could even use the proper elements to do so, but that does not mean that you are scripturally observing the Lord's Supper. And so the difficulty then, and we're going to look at it in detail later on, Because Paul, in dealing with the problems at the church at Corinth, points out the fact that because of certain problems that existed there, he tells them, you can't observe the Lord's Supper. This is not a proper observance of the Lord's Supper. And he warned them about it. He said, for this cause, many among you are weak and sickly, and many of you, he said, sleep. That is, some of you have died as a result of partaking of the Lord's table in, a, in an unworthily fashion. So this, this is serious business, according to the Bible. And it ought to be serious to us. Now, the difficulty has to do in us trying to get an accurate picture of the state of the church. Because I suspect that we all tend to, to give ourselves a higher grade than what God does we do that personally, right? You know, we look at our own life and examine ourselves and, and and so many times we we assume that we're better than what we really are. We we want other people to think the very best of us and so you know we'll you know, maybe not just intentionally distort the truth, but boy, we'll inflate it to the point that we're right on the on the verge of lying about it. Just And, and I think sometimes we convince ourselves that I, I'm really a good guy, I'm a great guy, I'm a spiritual giant or whatever. We do that on an individual basis. I want you to listen really carefully to what I'm about to say, because some of you might not like it. We also do that in regards to our country. We think about our nation and the problems that we have in our nation. You think about 3,000 babies a day in America that are murdered. Think about that. 3,000 a day murdered. And then there are all of the other sins that we could talk about. And and then we have the nerve to say, God bless America. We speak about America being the greatest nation on earth. Now think about it. Don't get mad and, and don't jump to conclusions. I want you to think about that. Because no longer do we accept the Bible as the rule of our belief and our behavior We kind of adopted this anything-goes attitude to where every person does that which is right in their own eyes, just like they did in the days of judges. You see, that's what happens in a pluralistic society. Whenever Hillary said, you know, it takes a village, takes a nation, and trying to strip the family of its authority uh, with the children and what have you to make it seem like we can't do without the federal government let me tell you we get along just fine without the government it's you know everything doesn't depend on the government a lot of our problems are caused by the government not solved by the government but we think about America and we want to believe the very best about it and we're talking about a nation and it's really difficult for me to not get off on a tangent on some of the other sins that could be mentioned that we put our stamp of approval upon and then I look over there at some of the things that that even in Russia this would be wrong. But in America... It's okay. Why? Because we've got to please everybody. Well, we've got to be politically correct in regards to everything. And we glory in our heritage as well we should, by the way. A heritage that we ought to be thankful for. But even as we glory in our heritage, we wallow in our sins. Murdering people. 3,000 babies every day? And there's absolutely no way that you can come to any other conclusion other than the fact that America basically is rotten to the core and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And what do we do? We sit back and keep talking about being the greatest nation on the earth. You know, that's like being in a ward with terminally ill cancer patients. Let's suppose there's a hundred in this huge cancer ward. And you're in there along with all of the rest of the patients. You're all dying. You're terminally ill. And you start boasting about the fact that you're better than all of the other patients because you're going to live a week longer. Look, you're not normal, you're not healthy if you're in a cancer ward with cancer. And bragging about being better than the others doesn't make you any better. And so whenever we talk about being the greatest nation on the face of the earth, and I want you to know we have been, there's not any doubt about that, but that doesn't mean we are what we ought to be. Now, I haven't forgotten what this little chat is all about. It might seem like that I've gotten way off base. I'm talking about the fact that so many times we do not want to be honest about the condition and the state of an individual or our country or our churches. We just don't want to admit the truth. Survey after survey has proven the fact that there is almost no difference whatsoever between the average professing Christian and the average citizen, somebody that doesn't even profess to be a Christian. And yet in all of these different areas regarding how we behave and so forth, there's no difference. Is lying Okay. Do you ever intentionally lie? And you, you they make up those surveys, and there's been no telling how many of them by different groups that have been made up, and they all prove exactly the, the same thing. So here we are, without one iota of difference between us and the world, openly flaunting our sin in the face of God, and bragging about, you know, how good we are. You see, that's the problem. We don't even see our sinfulness. Now, the subject of discussion is not about the individual, and it's not about our nation, but rather it has to do with the Lord's church. And not just any church. We're talking about this church. And as I said to start with, you know, I'm not 100%... Certain why I've been so reluctant to go ahead and just schedule the Lord's Supper and say, oh, they all understand it. They know what it's all about. I'm going to schedule it. We're going to do it next week. Uh, but I do know there are some factors involved in that decision. As a pastor, and this is true of every pastor, a pastor is not at liberty to tell everyone everything he knows nor does he have the right to speak of everything he suspects. You know, I, I, you know, I think so and so's doing thus and thus. I don't have any right to get up here and talk about what I think somebody else is doing. So those are not areas that I'm talking about tonight. The things that trouble me are those areas that are common knowledge. And when as the pastor of the church, I know there are things that are common knowledge, then there are areas that we have to deal with. Now, let me say this, and I'm not just saying that I'm speaking my heart and telling you the truth. I believe this is the very best church in town. I, I don't think there's a better church in Harris County than this church right here. I believe that with all of my heart. But that does not mean we are everything that we ought to be. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that, you know, because, you know, we feel like that we're more scripturally sound than other churches and what have you, and that we do things the right way whereas they don't. Uh, It doesn't mean that we do everything right. And... uh, and the problem is I'm amazed at the things that people do that they make known. And I, as I just said, I don't have any right to talk about things I suspect. Other things that I'm not at liberty to talk about that I know that, that still, remember the Bible says there has to be two or three witnesses in regards to any accusation against a person. So those are the, those are the guidelines that we have to operate on, right? So I have a right to deal with those. But there are some people that just they openly talk about their sins to other people. They're not shy about it at all. They'll talk about it. They'll engage them in conversation. Oh, I did this or I did that. Or even worse, they'll get on Facebook and show you what they're doing. Let me tell you, if I had started a scrapbook of crap I've seen on Facebook by the members of this church and I got up here and showed those pictures, it would embarrass some people to death. I do not understand God being my helper. I do not understand why anybody would be so stupid as to do something that they know is wrong, something that's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches and this church stands for, and they'll put it right out there on Facebook and laugh about it. There's something wrong when people do that. And then when people sin openly, yeah, I can make a list. But you don't want to hear it. Just openly flaunting their sin in public. Now, remember, I just got through saying, I believe with all of my heart this is the best church in the county. But we are not anywhere near being a perfect church, let me tell you. It broke my heart the other day, this A church, and in fact, every one of you, everybody, every every one of you knows the church here in our area. And the other day I got the announcement from a, from a person that has become somewhat of a, somewhat of a friend. Uh, uh, Anyway, somebody that corresponds with me quite a bit, made some very complimentary remarks. But in following this person, I also know of some of his particular sinful habits that he's put right out there for everyone to see. And just a short time ago, he was on there talking about what a wonderful privilege it was that next week he's going to be ordained as a deacon in this said church. I thought to myself, how in the world can a Baptist church ordain someone as a deacon that's doing these things. How, how can that happen? Listen, let me tell you, it's not that many years ago that would have never happened in any Baptist church. Southern or whatever. And nowadays, it's like nobody cares. I want you to understand God cares. And we talk about people just sinning openly, doing things that are... Clearly, contrary to the scripture. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, at least they're not hypocritical about it. Really. Let me ask you, does it make it, make, make you any less of a hypocrite because of the fact that you sin openly? Does that make you less of a hypocrite? Why, of course not. We shouldn't sin at all. But let me tell you, if we do, It would be better to do it in private than it would to do it in public. You say, well, what's the difference? I'll tell you, the difference is, when you do it in public, when you make your sin known to others, what you do is to create a stumbling block for others. You see, and you've heard me say many times that that sinless things can become sinful. You'll remember Paul was dealing with that with the church at Corinth about that matter of eating meat that had been offered up to idols. Well, they didn't offer it up to idols. Somebody else did but then after the offerings were all made to the idols, then they put it in the shambles, that is the marketplace, and they'd sell it there, or they would have some kind of a big, you know, Texas barbecue and cook it all up and invite people, and here they would come, and some of them was going over, reaping the benefits of that, and others, you know, said, Oh my, you shouldn't eat that meat because it's been offered up to idols. And so Paul is trying to trying to solve that dilemma. He said concerning the meat, there's not a thing in the world wrong with the meat. But then he made this statement. He said, but if eating meat makes my brother to offend, I'll eat no meat while the world standeth still. I'll refrain. I won't do it. Why? It would create a stumbling block for somebody else. You see, sin has an effect upon us. It has an effect upon others. Sin has an effect upon whether or not we can properly observe the Lord's Supper. And members that are engaged in sin, whether it's me or you or whoever it is, we are knowingly, willfully sinning against God, we should not partake of the Lord's Supper until we repent of our sin, till we get it right with God. We each have a responsibility, a personal, individual responsibility to confess our sins and make those things right with God before we partake of the Lord's Supper. But listen carefully, and I'm about through. The church also has a responsibility. It's called church discipline. In regards to those matters where a person is openly sinning and creating havoc in the church and so forth and they absolutely refuse to do anything about it and you take all of the appropriate steps set forth in the Word of God and you go to them and you try to deal with it, encourage them, finally it reaches the point that the church has to exercise church discipline. Boy, you don't hear much about that anymore, do you? And the people that are, again, that they talk about, you know, well, we just don't believe in kicking people out of the church, you know. We, well, we're not kicking anybody out of the church. We're exercising discipline against those members as a result of the sins in their life that they won't make right. By the way, do we not have as much obligation in regards to church discipline as we do in regards to the ordinances, that is, the Lord's Supper and baptism? We don't have, we don't have any right to ignore those ordinances, do we? Nor do we have any right to just ignore church discipline. And part of the problem is it's such a difficult matter. And it's difficult for several reasons, but for number one, it has been misused by people, pastors sometimes out of anger trying to get back at somebody. Let me tell you, church discipline has nothing to do whatsoever with us trying to, to, uh, to, to penalize somebody. It has to do with taking corrective measures in order to help restore them. We're not trying to punish them. That's not our place to punish people. All we're trying to do as a church is to make them wake up to the fact that the sin that you're committing is, is, is serious to God. And yet, church discipline's nearly unheard of today. Now, as the pastor of a church and the one with the responsibility to schedule the Lord's Supper, to administer the Lord's Supper, I take it very serious whenever I, when I know that there are folks that have the attitude that, oh, well, I, yeah, I, he's old-fashioned. I, I know what he's saying, and he might be right, but and people that will go ahead and partake of the Lord's Supper without any regard to the sin in their life. I've got a responsibility to call their attention to the seriousness of that matter. If I saw my kid, you know, playing out in the yard and a rattlesnake there, something that was about to destroy them, you know, I I'd do more than warn them, I'd get the hoe and cut the snake's head off. I'd get rid of it. Well, the problem here is, you know, is I I I can't get rid of sin. But I can do my best to warn the members of the church and instruct them that the Lord's table is an extremely serious matter. Now, listen, it's reason for rejoicing. Don't get me wrong. We come to the Lord's table with joy in our heart and gratitude also. But we need to be serious about it. And I'm not so sure that we are. And when I say we, I understand you are Mr. Spiritual Giant. Yeah, you've got it. But, but I don't want to see anybody weak and sickly and asleep. Or that is, I, I don't want to have any funerals as a result of somebody not caring about what God says about the Lord's Supper. And look, if I'm not going to believe that part of the Bible, why do I believe any of the Bible? And that's exactly what Paul said. And we're going to talk about it later on. Let me close on a good note, though. Here's the wonderful thing. And that is that as God's people, we have the wonderful privilege of being able to partake of the Lord's Supper, knowing that His precious blood was shed for us that his body was bruised and broken on that old tree there on Calvary, and that he paid our sin debt. He took our place. He suffered in our stead. He made every provision for us to have our sins forgiven and to be accepted into God's family and into heaven itself. What a wonderful privilege that is, and I... I, I hope you're looking forward to it and and I hope you'll pray for me as we go through these messages and try our best to explain it to where folks will understand exactly, exactly what we're talking about and in a few weeks why uh, we'll be observing the Lord's Supper here together. I really don't know how to even close this service tonight, how to give an invitation or what to do other than... The, say in some of the articles that I send out, think about it. You think about it, and it just might be that you've been overestimating your goodness. And it just might be that, that tonight or sometime during this week that you'll just want to get along with God and ask the Lord to reveal to, reveal to you all of those things that are displeasing in His sight so that you can deal with them. Remember the one of the old invitation hymns that we sing so much. In fact, for years and years when I was away in revival meetings, I carried the words to that hymn in my Bible. And I'd sit there before every message. And I'd sit there and go over the words, Search me, O God, and try my heart today. look that's what we need that time of getting alone with God and letting the Holy Spirit search out our heart and reveal to us those things that are displeasing in His sight so that we can deal with those issues and be blessed of the Lord and I pray that I pray tonight that some of these remarks will make you think about that let's stand together while we're standing